the interesting thing to me about like the official taper section or like the beginning of that is like it's usually brushed over in terms of like I would go through like Dennis McNally's book and I'd be like, all right, well, what does he say about the taping? And there's just a paragraph or like even in Long Strange Trip, the Amazon documentary, it's really just like brushed over. There's no nuance to it. It's not like, and there were like lots of meetings over the span of months and it backdates like all the way to the seventies, you know, with like Ron Rakow and like, Les Capel and this whole other story, it's like almost buried or like no one knows that it existed or they forgot. So, you know, it's interesting to me that something so profoundly quintessential supposedly to like the running of the business of the Grateful Dead that like oftentimes like the Wall Street Journal will be like, because of like taping and that, 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 like you have this new business model and it's like, but you don't ever describe any other aspect of it other than like the successful part of it, which is like it exists it or existed. And that is why, you know, this business model was new and exciting and still could be conceived as, as new and exciting to give things away for free, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, I was like, there's got to be more to that than that tagline. Hey, it's the official tapes. This is Grateful Dead radio program where we get into the official releases from the Grateful Dead. It airs on about 80 radio stations around the globe. And every so often we get a guest, an interview, and uh, they discuss the latest project that they're working on. This is Mark A. Rodriguez. I am the author of After All is Said and Done, Taping the Grateful Dead, 1965 to 1995 by Anthology Editions. It's an exploration of the Grateful Dead cassette trade. He is going to talk a little bit about his Dead Tape Collector project. That's going to intertwine with a section in the book called Tape Collector, Scanning the Trader Network. And then he's going to get into the taper section, which is section two of the book and how it all went down. It's interviews conducted by Mark A. Rodriguez, talking a little bit about his book, After All is Said and Done, Taping the Grateful Dead, 1965 to 1995. Check it out. The project's been going for 12 years, so like I'm used to endurance projects that just go on forever and maybe don't have an end to it. There's power to me in terms of like taking my time, like things don't need to be immediate and things can creep along and kind of just have a life of their own and I can live alongside it before it forces me to live with it. When you make art, and I know artists would understand this, but there's a point at which you become of service to the thing that you're making rather than the thing being like a novelty for you to participate in. When you do become beholden to the object that you're making, it's creating this profound experience where you can't control it like yourself anymore and you lose yourself in service of this bizarre thing you know it's an object like it has it has its own particular spirit in life but it really does it's not sentient you know so like you know it's always funny because you get mad you know like I get (laughs) mad at that point sometimes where you're just like I gotta do this thing because I made it for myself to do and but there's also something just really kind of enjoyable about getting to that part 
of a particular artistic pursuit. With the book, I wanted to go deep. I just didn't, I didn't know how deep I could go. And I still actually think I could have gone, you know, it's like I could have done more. Except like the editor, Mark Yosefescu, is like, we got to stop, you know. Like I always wanted to add more exa visual examples or documents or parts, snippets of interviews and like, Sometimes the snippets of interviews didn't really make a whole lot of sense to Mark Yosefescu. Like they made sense to me. And I was hoping like this would just be like another little factoid that I could insert in there that kind of wasn't really known or like people didn't have access to before. So, you know, by the time the book was finalized, like I was still kicking myself that I couldn't do X, Y, and Z. So the Dead Tape Collector project is basically the project that I have been executing since 2010, where I have been trying to collect every Grateful Dead show that they performed and was recorded on audio cassette between 1965 and 1995. So originally I started it as trying to figure out how to make a sculpture out of Grateful Dead bootleg tapes. That was kind of the point from which everything else comes out of. After years of collecting tapes for this specific purpose, I started making sculptures that I knew would be part of an ongoing series of sculptures. So I made a method by which to kind of elongate the project so that it had its own life to it and would kind of be able to kind of go through a system. From the get-go, I knew that creating the first gen, I had to I had to dub to what would become second gen. And so the gens that we're talking about are basically, uh, you know, autonomous sculptures that fit within a series that basically is a huge tape rack. So there are, I think first gen had 2,976 tapes, which were in chronological order, each no repeats of shows. So from 1965 to 1995 covered. But the thing that I knew that I don't think people ever really knew until the book is that, you know, even first gen was like an incomplete set of tapes like it never was like every show you could find on tape from 1965 to 1995 number one because i haven't actually finished the collection i don't know if i ever will at the time we're talking right now i have 160 or so tapes to find still but also fitting it within the kind of art system that i make other artworks with I wanted to figure out a way that like this sculpture could exist again and again and again. The first gen is all, I'll just use the term original, meaning that they were 
they were made by someone you know i had no hand in making anything and they were given to me so they could be fifth generation tapes they could be master tapes they could be any type of tape but i didn't have anything to do with it so you know in first gen there's 2976 tapes like that and then knowing that i wanted this whole system to kind of provide uh, the space to make a series of sculptures that was ongoing foreseeably for a very long time. I dubbed what I didn't have in like doubles and triples at that point in time to make up the difference within second gen. So second gen, I think is 3000 tapes. So I added 24 tapes to the collection, still not a complete collection. And this was kind of the way that I went about it and the ones that I dubbed, I made tape covers for, and I wrote down the set lists and I, re, you know, I dubbed every single one I listened to. I had a, I think at the time I had like maybe six uh, dual tape cassette players going at the same time. So I would pick a show to listen to for that dubbing. So I was listening to like the Grateful Dead that at that point, like every day, it took me eight months to dub, I think, I think there were 1,700 dubs from first to second. Currently, I just finished dubbing from ninth to tenth. So over the span of, what is it? 2000, from 2015 to now, it's taken me that long to get to that many generations. So, so that takes a long time to listen to like 1,790-minute cassettes. Um, I'm not going to calculate how many hours that is, but it's a lot. And also this goes into like what circulates. So like over time I learned which years circulate more than other years or what tours or what shows are just like really heavily traded tapes. And those are the ones that I have a lot of copies of, but I found a purpose in it, which was originally I wanted to just keep dubbing and dub the dubs and dub and dub and dub. And then, you know, it would become horse mash and I realized I was like, well, there's space to just flub up the system even more by like just always inserting different generations and different sources into these tape racks. So, you know, the doubles and triples would just go right back into it and I wouldn't have to dub it. So I wouldn't have to take a lot of time to do that and it wouldn't drive me completely bonkers, but that's what happened to all those, you know, doubles and triples. And I still have, you know, I have a cache of those triples, doubles, whatever it is, you know, so like, what is, what's the last date? Seven, nine, 95, right? Seven, nine, 95 is like, also like, it's just interesting to look at that as, you know, this heavily traded tape, for you know particular reasons or like Vanita Oregon 72 is like got a whole stack of this at the time we're talking right now I have 160 or so tapes to find still I know that they for the most part I know that they're they're most likely I would be able to get them from someone you know, some of them, I mean, there's a few, a handful that are like in the 90s. And I feel like that just is like because the show is crap or like 
not a lot of those shows circulated because they were crap. Like the only people that are going to have them were like people who are like maybe new deadheads or just like have a nostalgia trip attached to like that show. And like, it's like who wants like a tape from 94 for the most part, there really aren't that many shows you know, in 93, there's like a handful of shows that you're like, yeah, Yo, you should give that a listen there. And it's like an actual sh- complete show that's like pretty decent. You know, everyone's kind of like clicking together. You know, 94, like I usually have a hard time listening to it because it's like Picasso, Moon, Samba in the Rain. Everyone just sounds tired. Like it's just like <laughs> the finish line is there. They just don't know it. It's like incredibly difficult to like slog through the dubbing process at that point. Let's say you found 2679 and, you know, obviously I don't have that. I don't think anyone has that, but let's say I put that into the 10th gen. So it's in 10th gen and now I'm, now I'm making 11th gen so that I can finalize 10th gen. I would set up all the tapes that I need to dub, which means copy from 10th to 11th and the reason i'm dubbing them is because i don't have any other copy of them i don't have a double i don't have access to another version of that particular tape so with 2679 i would that would go in the pile of tapes that need to be dubbed before i return that one copy to 10th gen and so then i'll spend you know, at this point, it could be two months, it could be four months, it could be five months. I try to stay away from like going over that, um, but I can't control it. Um, but basically, now I have probably like, I think I have like 11 dual tape cassette players, and they're all in a rack, you know, like one of those wire racks, and they're all connected to a stereo system through a punch system. So I can punch into anyone. Um, tape deck to listen to it either for quality purposes or just to find something to listen to of interest and then so like you know when 2679 came around that would go in one of those tape decks and I would start you know hitting record on all the dual tape cassette players and I would make you know tape I'd flip the side when it was over and flip it onto the B side. Then I would mark all the tapes, uh, the date and the A side. So, cause I'm dealing with C90 tapes that are generic. So I don't know what side is what and I do know. Cause when you get used to it, you know that there's no tape on the right side of the tape when you're inserting it in the tape. Well, um, and that's the A side, but a lot of people don't know the nuance of that for good reasoning. After the dubbing process of A side, B side, I would take the A side, write the date, the set, if there is one, or if it's notated, and then A, and then I put it into uh, another box with, and put it in a jewel case. And then at this point, I used to do it in real time where I would make the J cards, like I would copy what set list was on the original J card onto my own J card. But now what I do is I just go through the whole dubbing process all at once. And then I just have like stacks and stacks of tapes that then I'm 
you know, copying the J card. So I do a lot of handwriting all at once. And then after that, you separate 10th and 11th in this particular case, and you put 10th back with its kin in 10th gen, and then you put 11th, you know, what's part of now 11th into 11th gen and its kin. And so then they, you know, sit in their respective boxes that are labeled very well so I don't get confused. And that's the dubbing process. Usually I say J card first. And if you're not a deadhead, you definitely do not know what a J card is. And then I usually say like, it's a tape cover and I hold up my hand and I go like that. And I say, it's shaped like a J. I think when I was young, that's how I, you know, I was like, J card, what are all these J cards? And then it was like, oh yeah, it's the shape of the profile of the tape cover. Even now I just say tape cover because it's, it's more understandable. I had a Tumblr page uh, in you know 2010 through, I think it's still going, but I don't really add to it that much, but um, in kind of a proto, like this day in Grateful Dead history, I was basically posting the day, the day that I was posting was represented by whatever tape cover I had of that date. And so I did that probably for like a good year and a half, you know, scanning all the collections I was getting and like organizing them. So they were chronological and then being able to post whatever J cards I had on the day that introduced me to more people. And the name of that Tumblr page was dead tape collector. So that's why the project has that namesake because it's just the name of the blog. And then eventually it moved over to Instagram. That's kind of the long and short of the dead tape collector project. I don't think I really described it. When I usually describe what I'm or what I have been doing, because the book took so long to make was um, usually I would start with, I have been trying to collect every Grateful Dead show on cassette tape that they performed between 1965 and 1995. I have, you know, over thousands of tapes, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, um, that's probably not good for radio, but, um, I basically I have thousands of tapes at this point. I'm still looking for 160 tapes and I've been working on this book for a long time that kind of documents the process that I've gone through and also shows some of the J card art or tape cover art from some of the more colorful and graphic arts oriented J cards that I you know have passed through my hands. This is kind of like a conversation with the publishers often was like, what is this book? Like, what is it a, is it a book about this project or is it a book about the Grateful Dead or is it a book about Mark Rodriguez? Like what, what's the focal point of it? And my answer was always like, well, it's all of the above. It's everything entwined, you know, like I'm inserting myself into the Grateful Dead phenomenon as like almost another character, a researcher and as an artist. And then 
I am also presenting information about uh, one facet of history of like this huge pop culture entity and once, you know, underground subculture. But I also like made it a point to like describe the project that I was doing to give context to why these tape covers exist. Going back to visual art, it's like if I'm like, I do this art project whereby I am collecting all these tapes and I'm making autonomous sculptures that then also fit into a series of sculptures that showcase like my collecting efforts, but also me like subverting that collecting effort by degrading audio while also increasing the amount of tapes within the collection to eventually get to a complete historical document of, you know, this cultural entity that existed. Like, I've already lost you, you know? The meeting's already done. And you're like, I don't have any interest in this. Like, it's too complicated to figure out how to like format it. Because it started out as a conversation about a book about J cards, you know, from there I could expand it slowly to be like, well, you know, the project shows you why the J cards exist. So that makes sense to put that in there, right? You know, this book is kind of, to me is kind of boring if I'm just like, it's about me and like, here's some art and like, there you go. Enjoy it. Put it on your coffee table and, you know, everyone will enjoy it because it's really straightforward. But like, you know, having read all of the different books that have come out and like listened to all these interviews and like having my own perspective on things that always like really weird, nerdy information and it's like i always know there's more out there that like isn't really being expound upon in terms of like the grateful dead being a band that plays music so mostly a lot of the conversation goes back to the music which i appreciate but as like someone who is kind of interested in collecting and archiving and archives and have been for a long time i know that there's like digging to be done to get information that someone like myself, which I know is very rare, would be interested in. You know, I want, I knew I wanted to provide some kind of history in conjunction with, you know, the description of the project at that point and the J cards. It just was like, I didn't know what history or like what, how it would form until I was able to go to the archive at University of California, Santa Cruz. And that was basically me just being like, I'm gonna look around. I don't have anything really particularly in mind. And so lo and behold, I was like, oh, I can look through like this box and this box, this has this, 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 and the other. And I was like, oh, like they have the business meeting minutes from like the 80s which is when the official taper section started so that works and like i was just trying to find whatever could correlate to like any kind of conversation about taping but that was kind of the start of how i was able to like 
start kind of contacting people with myself. Like I don't, I didn't have that, but I had like these documents and it was the middle of the pandemic. So like no one was doing anything. David Gans, like I interviewed on the day that like America found out that they were shutting down. And luckily I was able to just kind of navigate that and be able to kind of just tell people what I was doing, which was like, I have these documents, mainly 1984, uh, aside from like the Les Capel part, which is like 1972. The Les Capel part. He's proposing this in the early 70s, right? So the official tapers section doesn't happen for another 12 years. That kind of developed in and of itself. Like I kind of was just flying by the seat of my pants and then... After a year of interviews, we had like a thousand or over a thousand pages of transcribed interviews to kind of edit down to 180 pages. But like, that's kind of how it came to be. It was just like the desire, there was literally the desire to want to provide information that had never been published before, really. And to give like the heads something so nerdy to, you know, enjoy, basically was kind of the impetus of that. I mean, tapes existed before this, but we have an official taper section. So there's probably some official information about like what that conversation was like. You know, the tapes are in chronological order, presented in chronological order. It's like the sculpture, like it's 1965 to 1995, it's in chronological order. So I was trying to mirror that with the interviews, but also that keyword again, context. It's like, let's put this in context. Like, let's give you the date that I'm talking to this person. So like, you know what's going on that day. And also you're seeing the progression of my ideas unfold as I get in contact with other people through the previous people that I talked to, like someone, you know, might mention a name and I might be like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Now I have a reason to talk to this person. Stu Nixon basically sent me his tour notes to look at. And there was an article on John W. Scott for dead base that was from the chronicle but also mentioned blair jackson so it was like blair jackson and regan jackson are affiliated with the chronicle because they're both journalists but like i also was like i always wanted to talk to blair jackson but i didn't have a reason so here is the reason so now we can put him in there in relationship to dead base and like taping and all the other stuff Dennis McNally, I kept coming back and being like, wait, one more question. You know, because it was that thing. It was like, I I would regret not covering something I just didn't know about yet. And so I would go back to like, you know, some source in some instances with Stu, I think, and Dennis, where it's just, there's just like a lot of road to cover. And like, 
I just sometimes just didn't know certain things and I would be like, oh, like, okay, that makes sense with this. And I have this document maybe that I just didn't know what to do with. Like, let's go back and then maybe there's an excuse to, to put it in or whatever. My main thing was like, well, the information exists for the most part, it's just scattered. So that's why there's like, you know, snippets of interviews from like Dupree's Diamond News or The Golden Road or Relics or Unbroken Chain. Like it's there, but like if you, if one were to want to get all that information, you'd have to like have whole collections of these, you know, magazines or zines. And also the tapers compendium, you know, it's like that thing is huge and it has like a big history and it has like all the tapers war stories and all that stuff and so much more. And so like the thing that was going on in my head was like, well, yeah, there's all that stuff, but it's not in like one place and it's not really concise and it's not short enough to be interesting it's not provided in a way that where the layout is like visually stimulating i guess and so i think that's kind of where again like being an artist kind of comes in because i'm like oh what's going to be visually interesting and what's how is it actually going to work providing all this information in one place but like actually making it move in a, in a somewhat linear line of thinking like how's it all going to make sense and so that was kind of like the excitement of it was like i you know i knew that i was really kind of for all intents and purposes like making a resource like making a new type of resource that like those magazines were or those zines were or the taping compendium was or dead base was but like i was almost like I was regurgitating it, but kind of updating just a tad bit of it and in relationship to this project, which was basically like entombing it in art culture permanency, you know, or that's like at least the, the motive and like the intent is like preserving. I think in the end, maybe the end result of my pursuit of kind of consolidating information might be more profound in terms of like making it, making interest in that history new or making the history look new, you know, kind of like the American, you know, any type of history, it's like anyone has access to whatever archive exists, say without like first person experience. And maybe you don't have the ability to interview anyone who's alive anymore, say like with something that happened like 1755 or whatever. But, you know, anyone has the ability to reinterpret what exists of like secondary, maybe primary source material or whatever it may be. I mean, I guess also in a way too, like if you're going to wax poetic about it, some like further which i mean this you know it's art so we're waxing poetic we're finding a new language to describe something that's you know familiar to everyone but you just don't say it in that way but like you know it's like i'm returning back to the 60s i'm returning to the 70s i'm returning to the 80s and i'm returning to the 90s so i'm like 
I'm returning to all these time periods through this particular music and its format within that particular time. Or, you know, even to go further, it's like I'm returning to that music and the format of that time in the format that it's provided or the format that it was recorded. And then furthermore, it's like in the format that it is provided or it exists musically in the format that it's provided through like the format that it's recorded with the person that it re who recorded it and their story the remnants they leave behind the j cards you know it's like in a way it's like time is so circuitous like the 60s were kind of about the you know the like cowboys and you know the aesthetic you're getting from the, the posters of like the Fillmore west or like cowboys and victorian age stuff and like the 70s is sometimes looks like the 50s you know you have greece you have um, the Shananas, you know, like all, there's these things where you're like, wait, why were they into the 50s at this point in time? But now we're in the 90s and we're in the 60s again. So like there's always that 20 year, you know, like it's 2022 where it's still like getting out of the 90s. There is a 90s resurgence. And now I think we're going into like the resurgence of the 2000s, which is a very odd, like I'm like, I don't know how we contextualize like even the style of the 2000s, but it's there. Like we have perspective on it. Now we can go back into it. So I think partly that like going back to the source is like, well, what's the source? The source is, you know, could be time, but it's also like this other nefarious thing that exists in other time periods that we have perspective on that we're always trying to learn from. And, you know, it's it just <laughs> it can be like kind of mind-boggling. They kind of just try to describe that phenomenon.